All right, Ross B. Williams here, and I am super excited to have our guest, Lonnie Dickinson, on our show today. Uh, Lonnie has an amazing story that we're going to talk about, and she was actually a Fortune 175 CEO, which is probably one of the hugest achievements you can have in our country in the world of business. And then also her stories about how she's going into entrepreneurships and helping entrepreneurs now with all that knowledge we have. So Lonnie, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Ross. It's uh, great to be here with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm super excited to have you. Tell us in like 30 seconds, 60 seconds, a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, I have a hard time answering questions in 30 or 60 seconds, so I'm going to keep it as <laughs> brief as possible. I, You mentioned I was a former Fortune 175 CEO. I recently left that two years ago and went full-time as an entrepreneur been side hustling for about a decade, well, more than a decade, and decided I was pretty much done with the whole corporate side of things as a full-time person and wanted to really help entrepreneurs kind of install the things that are that make corporations successful, but not the bureaucracy, because mm -hmm. I find so many entrepreneurs don't do those things. And so they can't get out of the business. They're doing all the doing and they're fighting all the fires. Or when they go to truly exit their business and sell it, they kind of get screwed out of valuation. So passionate about that. Awesome. So basically you're taking your skill sets you learned from being a CEO of a Fortune 175 company and you're applying those to help small business owners scale their business, yep. develop so that they don't get screwed over when they go to sell it. They want to yeah. maximize the dollars when they sell it or create time freedom for them so they can actually enjoy the fruits of their labor and enjoy their life and keep the business. But yeah. you're, you're setting them up so their business runs smoothly, sells or is valued at the most money possible, and that they actually get the time freedom to enjoy their life. And location freedom. And locate time yeah. and location yeah. freedom so they're not stuck in the office all yeah. day. Got to get that. That's awesome. So I know there's a ton of people out there that really want to hear this story and this message on, on how that happens. Tell me a little bit about, like, what was your first experience with entrepreneurship? <laughs> well... To be very honest, my mom was a street drug dealer and, you know, I'd be in the back of the car when they'd go pick the stuff up. And when I tell people that, I don't think they realize this was the 70s. My mom was the owner of her company and it was enough of an operation. She had a cop living with us to protect the operation. So I would come home, second grade, piles of cocaine on the table. I could tell you all about how they cut it and weigh it on the scale and all of that little different than probably the way they do things today, but I watched that operation from the inside out for a very long time. Wow. That was not what I was expecting to hear today. So <laughs> second grade, that's seven years old. Yeah. And prior, but that's where the memories are really clear for me. Right. And so you're literally watching your mother run a drug dealing business mm -hmm. out of your kitchen. Yeah. On the streets. And the living room. In the living room. That's absolutely wild. So how do you think that impacted your journey on on in business? Well, it, it took me a long time really to think back and realize how that's impacted business. Mm -hmm. But my intuition is through the roof for sure. And sales, that's, you know, I, I have a sales team, but in general, sales, I can kind of sense where we need to go. I'm sure it came from that because, and this is where the biggest impact was, that is your your gut has to be strong. That's true live or die stuff, right? And this was a woman running that empire in the 70s. I want to reiterate that. So how it impacted me more so than in business, I think it's held me back in many ways because I have been incredibly security programmed 
and reluctant to kind of take the risks in my own place, like push myself, took me 28 years to leave corporate. Why? Because along with the dealing, all the things that happen in a dealer's life happen to me. You know, all the things you might imagine happened to a little girl whose mom is high in dealing drugs. It happened. And I would come home from school and we didn't live there anymore. But I didn't get the memo. So I'd be trying to get in. And, and we're not talking living like Scarface and mansions with Lamborghinis <laughs> no, and Ferraris. We're talking like apartments, living in apartments yeah. in the, in the what, projects or. Not necessarily the projects, the but definitely the hood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a guy next door, I heard a gunshot go off and I heard it. And I wasn't afraid of gunfire because it was a normal thing in my life. But I found out later that the guy committed suicide. So at a very early age, you know, there's this exposure to this suicide thing. It's not normal to have a cop live with you and have their guns out and that kind of stuff. So how that impacted me growing up was... I left home when I was 15. It was like, I can't live this way anymore. And so at 15, you're on your own with no, no family support, support yeah. nothing. It yeah. just, I'm going to do this by myself. Yeah, well, I, I can do this bad by myself. I may as well not have to deal with, you know, your stuff. I learned very early that adults don't make great decisions for me. <laughs> so as soon as I was in California, 15, you can get a work permit. As soon as I got a work permit, made some money became a waitress, made a lot of money on Saturdays and tips. I was like, yeah, I can support myself now. Wow. That's something, um, you know, cause I know a lot of entrepreneurs, we all go through these ups and downs. We have struggles, but now you're talking about, you literally grew up in probably one of the worst scenarios you could think of. And then at 15, you're like, I gotta get away from this and make my life better. Cause if I stay with them, I'm gonna end up like them. Right. Yeah. So you pull yourself apart. So from there you're 15, you got a job. What are you doing to, to future? What's your next steps to like, future yourself? Is it college? Was it more At work? 15? Or, or as you were going through that phase? Before? I don't really have a plan, honestly. Um, and this is a theme of kind of my life for a long time. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a plan. I was moving uh, NLP person. So I was moving away from instead of towards. I was like, I don't want that and what all that is. And I wasn't really worried that I was going to be an addict. When you kind of grow up with that, you decide very early. I'm either not going to be that. And I know that. And I had my grandmother's influence. So she would always tell me like, you don't have to be like them. You, you know, you can make different choices. And she pounded it into my head that I needed to do well in school. So I was a straight A student when I dropped out at 18. So I didn't really have a plan. I just knew that wasn't it. And it was actually a situation with her boyfriend, to be frank, he tried to kiss me and I was like, fuck this. We're not going down this route again. And I said, hey, mom, you know, Dick, his name was Dick for real. Uh, Dick just tried to kiss me. And she's like, oh, I think his he's misplacing his affection for me. And I was like, y'all motherfuckers are crazy. I'm out. That's when I left. I didn't really have a plan. I just knew I'm not living like this anymore. And I don't have to. I knew that I didn't have to. And I had my own money now that was legal. So when I was 18, though, I woke up pregnant. And that was my wake up call was like, I'm not just going to screw up my own life. I'm screwing up this baby that I hadn't met yet, but I loved more than anything. And so I left school and went to junior college and became a nurse because I I met with the counselor and I said, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm single. I don't have any money. I don't have any high school education, but I dropped out with 4.0. And he said, well, there's two things you can do quickly. Nursing or corrections. Nursing it is. (laughs) So I became a nurse. 
Awesome. And then so so you started your journey. That was when you started your career is you went to become a nurse. How did you we were talking about you being a Fortune 175 CEO. Now you're talking about you were a nurse. Explain like what is this journey? Explain this to me. Well, I went to work in the hospital and there's a lot of conflict in the hospital, nurses and physicians, administration and physicians. I think based on the way I grew up, conflict doesn't bother me. I'm not afraid if we're going to get into physical altercation. I promise you I know how to fight. I actually, before, even before this, you know, street fight, I can do that. So I might get my ass kicked when I'm going to get a few hits in and I'm not afraid to fight. So conflict and, you know, sticking up for myself and being yelled at and all those things, they don't bother me like they do many people who don't have the background with the criminal side, right? Mm -hmm. So I really think that was key to my success early on because I wasn't afraid of the physicians. Now, I'm not saying physicians are monsters. They're not. But they're often quite demanding, especially specialists. They just don't put up with, and that's great if you're the patient, right? You don't want somebody accepting mediocrity. But that feels like conflict. Mm -hmm. They're just stating, hey, this is wrong. And so a lot of people shy away from that. Oh, they were mean to me and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, I lean in. Yeah, they get offended. I lean in and that's not conflict to me. So I think that was a key part of my early success. So where other people are going, oh my God, I'm offended. They hate me. They're mad at me. Mm-hmm. You're going, awesome. How do we fix it? Yeah, well, let's fix it, which is very entrepreneurial. Like we, right. take, we take feedback and go, okay, let's fix it, right? So I went into leadership very early. By like the third year I was a nurse, I was like a shift leader. So you're like, what, 22 at this point? Uh, yeah, 22, 23. Shift leader. And I discovered that I loved leadership. Moving obstacles for other people was awesome for me. Uh, There were a couple things I was going through at that time. I started my career as an ER nurse and Mm -hmm. um, that adrenaline, I love that adrenaline, but I also had to deal with a lot of what's going on in the ER matches my family of primary origin. So it was too much for me emotionally. I hadn't done the work yet. Right. Uh, I had been running away from what my past was. I hadn't really dealt with it. So I had to leave the ED pretty quickly. Then I went into ICU, did open heart and that kind of stuff. And that's where I learned that, you know, I got along well with the specialist and I wasn't afraid of them and that kind of stuff. So I was working through my own, where can I fit into nursing? Because I didn't realize that the drug overdose stuff and the early death and those kind of things were going to show up and haunt me in my career. So I was dealing with that personally and running around, uh, frankly, pretty angry. I had like rage anger. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then I discovered this leadership thing and I was like, wow, I can be strong and help other people. And that was amazing. I, I love that part. And from there, it really just took off like administrators would listen to me because I wasn't emotional about the stuff. Right. Right. And um, I just kind of grew on the nursing leadership side of things. And there was this guy, I don't even remember his name. I wish I did. But he was chief operating officer in a hospital I was in. And I was in some meeting and he said, you know, you really should be a chief operating officer. You know, you're not emotional. You stick to the thing. You fix the the problem. You're all about the system. You should go get an MBA. I really didn't even know what that was. I had just finished my, you know, I did an AA and then I did my bachelor's in nursing. I didn't really know what an MBA was. So he said, you should go to a couple, you know, those meetings they have to say, hey, come to our school. So I did. And I I ended up choosing University of San Francisco and I just fell in love with the idea that I'm passionate about outcomes in healthcare, but I discovered I'm not really 
I like the science and I like the outcomes. Like I taught pharmacology for four years. Mm -hmm. So I really like the science side of things. But based on my past, I'm not really the hand-holding nurse. And I hadn't really at this point gone through my journey of healing all my stuff and doing all my NLP and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I went and got an MBA and here's what I discovered. I was in love with making it better for the people working in the hospital. So my first job after my MBA was director of quality. So I used data to make the people who had the money make the right decisions for the system, for the patients, for the nurses, for the physicians. And I thought that was the best job in the hospital. And that I thought, okay, I'm going to do that forever. And then I became the chief nurse and then a chief operating officer, then a chief executive officer. And, you know, about every 18 months after I did the healing journey, every 18 months or so, I had a promotion after that. Wow. So you basically literally went in as a 22-year-old nurse, 20-year-old nurse. Mm -hmm. And worked your way up to CEO of this hospital conglomerate. It wasn't even just one hospital, right? It was like a string of hospitals. Yeah. And eventually, not in a couple years. This whole journey was 28 years. but Right. But still, the thing like most people, you know, they go to college. If they become a nurse or school teacher, whatever their degree led them to, to think that it's possible to literally climb the ranks from I mean, in a hospital, that's not it's not like reception or front desk, but it's basically entry level position in medical. Well, I did start. I started as a nursing unit clerk. Right. And worked your (laughs) way up to CEO of this Fortune 175 company, which is. I was over a region for a while, too. Just impressive. 23 facilities over California and Arizona. I've done it all. I've done it at the hospital level, the market level, the region level, the state level, a couple states. So tell me, what are the skill sets that you've learned by doing that? that most small business, medium businesses aren't doing? Well, that's a long list, but... Let's start with the top three. (laughs) Immediate, getting somebody else into sales. You wouldn't think in healthcare it's sales, but it is sales. So getting someone else selling the product so that the the CEO is often external facing and their job Mm -hmm. is to grow volume and all of that. This is true of uh, any business, but oftentimes... You can't grow fast enough if it's just the founder doing the sales. So that's a big one I see. They feel like, yeah, their close rate 78, 80% and their salespeople are maybe 50% or whatever. And so they're like, oh, well, you know, nobody can do it as well as I can. That's probably true. The founder selling their own stuff is, is probably better at it. Yeah. Is going to be better at it. But that's not best for their time and location freedom. It's certainly not best for their exit valuation, you know, if they're going to sell it. Well, that and I tell my clients a lot because I have a client that do a lot of sales. And I said, they expect their employees to sell at the same rate as them too. Never going to happen. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. Like you're, you're going to close, like you said, 80%, they're going to close at 20, 30 if you're lucky. Yeah. So you got to base your numbers and percentages off of that. Yeah. So that's the big one I see that because somebody else has got to start bringing money and it can't just be the founder. If the founder's going to get a day (coughs) off, a week off, a month off, the revenue can't stop. So that's the big one. The next really big one I see, well, I guess this kind of lumps in is just consistent, repeatable sales system, mm-hmm. not one-off sales where they're customizing everything, like con- consistent, repeatable sales. And people think, well, how'd you learn that in healthcare? Well, you have to develop programs. It's no different. It doesn't matter what business you run. You have to develop programs that people will seek you out. You have to be really good at them and be clear what their needs are. It's, it's, no different. Right. So consistent, repeatable sales and then salespeople who can close, I guess, is uh, the top thing. And then you got to get a number two sooner than you think. 
as soon as you can afford it. And when you add salespeople, you should be able to afford it very quickly. Get a number two. And the idea is transfer how you think, how you make decisions to this person. And every job I've had, whether it was the chief nurse, the chief operating officer, or the chief executive officer, or when I owned a gym, or when I first started my coaching company, and even now, the first thing I say is, who's going to sell? The next thing I say is, how am I going to get Fridays and Mondays off? That means I need a number two. Right. First thing, when you want to have your time and location freedom, you need that. When you want to sell your business, guess what they're going to ask you? Is there a number two and will they stay? Got to have it. Right. Can it run without you? Can it run without you? If if the business requires the owner to run, your exit valuation is nothing. And if you're not looking to sell, you have no time and location freedom. You're constantly putting out fires. The third thing I would say is every entrepreneur, small business owner on the planet detests SOPs. But guess what? If you don't have a system, you don't have anything you can sell. You're never going to get out of firefighting. So developing as much automation as possible, not losing the human touch if you're in a human type of a business. And then figuring out, okay, we get to whatever our goal is, let's say a million dollars. Those systems aren't going to get you to 10 million. So now you got to start optimizing the system. If you don't have things documented and you don't know which segment is doing what, you're spending a lot of time on the wrong thing. You know, if your problem is your landing page doesn't convert, let's not focus down here on what was engaging in the Facebook group. Like we're losing money on the landing page not converting, right? So if people don't know what their system is and every segment of it and how it's converting and what's happening there, they're paying a lot of people to do the wrong thing. And then they say, this doesn't work. Uh, No, Facebook ads work. But if you don't know where you're losing money and what's converting, you're in trouble. So first getting that system documented and all pieces of it, and then looking at the numbers and saying, what are we going to spend the next 90 days on and optimize? And then systematically going through all pieces of the system every 90 days, what are we going to work on next? Right. And just keep doing it. So those would be the top three for me. Awesome. So basically step one, the owner, the founder needs to pull himself out of sales out of and sales. find people to replace him to do the sales for mm-hmm. him and successfully. And with that, you can multiply your salespeople and you can scale up. No drug dealer that has an empire is selling their own drugs on the corner. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they don't even leave the kitchen table. No. When I was in the gym. We put in all the automation to bring in the leads. I wasn't closing sales. And that's, you know, we scaled that. Uh, After in the hospitals, you go out, you meet with the physician, you say, what program can we build that people need? It's not my face on the ads, right? Right. You got to get the founder out of sales. Right. And that will increase their value when they go to sell their Mm -hmm. business, right? Mm -hmm. And give them their life. And give them their life. What, What rate? Like when the founder, well, that goes to the number two. So that was number one was remove yourself from sales. Mm-hmm. Number two was find a number two that can run that business. So if you're not there, it keeps running. Yeah. Right. And then number three was develop SOPs systems, which is basically allows someone else can come in, hire brand new people with no experience, give them the SOPs and they're up and running in no time. Now your number two gets a number two. Right. And now the business runs without you. Yeah. And when they get those in line, How much more can they sell their business with those three things in line versus if they don't have those in line? Each of those, I think, would have a varying impact. And I said them in the order of importance because the future buyer, if we're talking about selling your business, the future buyer is buying future cash flow. So they're going to 
estimate, you know, time value of money and they're going to apply a discount to that. So a growing business, they're going to apply a different number versus one that's kind of plateaued. They're going to apply a different number. So there's a lot of variation that goes into that. But consistent, repeatable sales system and the founder is not in sales, you're going to get a couple more times earnings for that. When you go into, is there a number two and will they stay? What that gets them is if there's a number two and they're going to stay and they are running that business and the owner spending months and months and months and just drops by and or maybe is on the board or, you know, something like that, that valuation is going to soar. But here's how it how it impacts the owner directly. If you have a number two, you're probably not going to get stuck with an earnout. And so why I'm passionate about this is there's a whole industry teaching people how to acquire these businesses. Mm-hmm. First question, they have consistent, repeatable sales. Will, will this cash generating happen when the owner leaves? Is there a team that's going to stay? If not, the owner's probably financing the sale and it's the proceeds from the business making the payment. And they probably have to stay three to five years because they're not sure that the business is going to work without the So not the only owner. can they not sell it for what it's truly worth, they can't even leave. They can't leave. And someone else is now making the decisions. So and now they, they have a even, boss. Now they have a boss. So they sold it for less money. I can't think of one entrepreneur that wants a boss again. None of them. <laughs> yeah. None that I've met. That's why we became entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, so if they are able to do that and create that number two in that team, so then how many more times are they able to sell their business? So if, if the owner, one of the key things is, does the owner know everybody by name, mm-hmm. the customers? If they do, that's probably going to be a valuation of like maybe 2.5. If they have these other things in place, but they, they know all the customers by name, that's going to be like. 2.5, 2.8 times earning. And this might be different in a various industries, but that's a good kind of ballpark. It may be even three if it's certain industries, but that's going to soar up to like four times earnings if they have these things, just these first three things up in place. That's going to soar. That's going to like double what they can sell it for. It's amazing. Wow. So let's say they're a $2 million a company. They're now an $8 million a company by fixing these things. I can't tell you that because, you know, every industry is a little bit different. But yes, they're going to they're going to drop more money to the bottom line if they do right. all of these things. Whatever that bottom line is like, once you hit a million dollars, a million dollars in free cash flow at the end of everything you've done, when you can drop a million dollars in profit down to the bottom line, you are suddenly very viable. A million dollars is a worthy number. And if you have all of these things, if you let's say if you don't. If you don't have these things, people are going to try to buy that for one and a half times earnings. That's the difference. So now you got a million dollars in cash, you know, at the end of the year, somebody wants to buy that for $1.52 million. Right. Instead of four. Instead of four or six or whatever. So if somebody has, you know, monthly recurring revenue in there, that valuation is going to go up. So it kind of depends on the industry, but one and a half times earning, two times earning when you've put 30 years into the business, yeah, that sucks. Let's get that up to three and four and five Make it and seven. seven just by doing 100%. three or four of the 12 things I'd love you to do. <laughs> right. So now you recently, you were telling me about a company that you came in that was on the verge of going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And you and was it six months or 12 months you turned them around for less sale? than 12 11 months they were sold so wait you took them from almost they were basically like hey we got to fix this or go bankrupt mm-hmm. 
And in less than 12 months, you brought them to the success they needed to sell. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's painful, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I came in in July and I was just going to be the consultant. And I poked around in the data, looked at all this stuff for about two weeks, came up with first blush plan, presented that, and the CEO resigned. I'm not doing that. It's impossible, whatever, because it's hard work. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, we don't have a plan B and we were going to file bankruptcy you're our Hail Mary, so can you stay and be like the fractional CEO? So I did, uh, first week of August, and did all the things you have to do to do a turnaround. I've been doing turnarounds most of my career. All the things you have to do to do a turnaround. We did, of course, continue to lose money because it takes time to put those things in place. But the first thing is obviously labor. You got to get at right-sizing the labor, which is the painful part. You got to figure out who can stay with the team, who's going to get on board with the new way of doing business profitably, all those things. You got to work through all that. So the parent corporation was putting in all the payroll at this point. So fast forward to April of this year and the place was paying its own payroll. And then in May, it was paying its own payroll and slightly positive. And they're on track for a $6 million a year, which is great because they were losing $2 million a month when I got there. A month? Mm -hmm. So they went from negative 12 million a year to positive 6 million a year in 11 months. Yeah. So 2 million a month would be 24 million a year, right? Two times 12. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah. But they had just gotten to the 2 million mark. They were like one, one and a half for the months prior to that. But anyway, yeah. So from I took over in August. And shoot, so, if that kept going at that exponential number, they would, I mean, they would have lasted a couple more months probably. Oh, they rate. were ready to file bankruptcy. Yeah. They were done. Yeah. The guy said to me, could you do what you did at this other place? I don't have any other options. I'm either going to file bankruptcy or you're going to see what you can do. I, I don't have any other options. And wow. so they just transitioned to their new owner. And that guy said to me, hey, I got about six facilities you could go to. It, actually, he said, so who was your team you did this with? I was like, what team? I, like, it took me a minute to figure out. He thought that I had a team of 10 people doing this. I was <laughs> like, no, I actually eliminated every di director level position and rebuilt with lower salaries and all those kinds of things. That was me. I didn't even hire a CFO until January. That was me, dude. <laughs> right. So what's your what's your plan now? I know your, your goal, the reason why you left corporate to come into helping small businesses and medium businesses. Yeah. So currently I am helping seven figure entrepreneurs that you can get to seven figures, but not have all this stuff in place, but you can't get to eight figures and not have all this stuff in place, or you can get to eight figures and have a couple of them in place. But I'm helping seven figure entrepreneurs go to eight figures and get their time and location freedom. So build all these things to two versions of exit, get your time and location freedom or sell the damn thing and take the money and go do something else. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome. And what types of businesses, or is it just any any type of, is there a certain? For me, that it doesn't matter. Business, people don't realize this, but I've done online. I've done brick and mortar in my own businesses. I've done corporate. My husband's a brick and mortar. He's an attorney. All the principles are the same. It doesn't matter what kind of business you run, whether it's HVAC, plumbing. I find small businesses where they're doing the work of the world. They are people who are experts at what they do, and they've developed a team of people who can do the work they do but all of these things are missing. And then there's the online entrepreneur 
where they might be more focused on the data and the segments and all of that, but they don't necessarily know all these other, they're missing the same thing. It doesn't really matter the kind of business for me. The small business owner who jumped out there and started doing the work that needed to be done, most oftentimes they're missing these other five or seven things. That, like It's amazing to me, you'll talk about the numbers and they don't know them and they're written on a napkin or they don't even have a spreadsheet yet. I mean, it's it's amazing. Because, well, they're out there doing their work. They're doing, they're doing what the they're work. passionate about with yeah. the, the reason why they and got they're And they're damn good at it. Yeah. But they're fighting all the fires and doing all the doing. They're just trying to, they're literally doing the job of 12 people. Exactly. And um, and so you come in and help them clean all that up yeah. and, and grow their business. Yeah. Grow their business and live their life and then sell it for more when they're Which really Which is probably bad. the most important part. For me, it is. That's where my passion because comes Because no from. one becomes an entrepreneur so they can sit in an office all day. Yeah, that's the amazing thing. We, uh, I think if you ask, you know, 100 entrepreneurs, why are you doing it? They'd say freedom and family, right? And then they end up not spending as much time with their family. I've been guilty of that myself. And th this is really the passion for me, because when I tell you I was in corporate for 28 years and my son is 33, what does that tell you? Mm -hmm. I built that career while he was little before I was aware of this time runs out thing. Right. I mean, I had him when I was 18. So I was, you know, young and dumb. So my passion for getting people time and location freedom comes from the regret I have of driving my son to college going, shit, we are really out of time. I cried from the Central Valley of California all the way to University of Santa <laughs> Barbara because I, that was the day I figured out oh, man. he doesn't live at home anymore. So that's why I'm passionate about that. I'm like, hey, I want to get you Back where you really belong. Yeah. Get those years back. I say never miss a moment that matters. That's what I'm passionate about. Yeah. I also want people to be like stinking rich because I believe if my mom had different resources, she wouldn't have had to make the choices she needed to make to survive. Right. Uh, she came from a very wealthy family, but their mental health wasn't a thing until, you know, really recently. And so she didn't have the resources she needed. And it was just like, you know, you're out on your own and. If you're going to do drugs, you're not part of the family kind of a thing. And I think if she would have had the money and the resources to do things differently, I do believe she would have made different choices. So I want everybody to have a truck ton of money in their back pocket so they can make great choices for them, for their kids, for their village. I, I think that just solves a ton of problems. But I don't want you to give up your time and your freedom to make to that money. It. Yeah. 100%. So time, location, freedom. Yeah. Be with your family, be with your spouse, be with your loved ones, be with your friends, just and just do the things you want to do. Or take doing. a nap. Yeah. <laughs> take a nap. Or sit on the beach. Or read <laughs> like, a book. That's what I do. Yourself. So awesome. So if we were, as we, as we wrap up the show today, if you were to give one piece of advice to all the entrepreneurs and business owners out there, what would it be? Oh my gosh. You should have told me about that ahead of time. I'm not that. <laughs> Let's see. One piece of advice. So I would say it's really two for me, Ross. Okay, I'll take two. Get really clear on what it is you want. You could ask somebody, you know, what do you want? And they'll give you a list of 100 things they don't want. But that's not how our brain works. When we get really clear and we can see what does the marble on the countertop look like, suddenly that's what the kitchen looks like. So get clear I call it, if not this, then what? Get really clear on what you do want in every aspect of your life. And then just start asking yourself, is the shit I'm doing every day 
Is it moving me towards that goal? If the answer is yes, keep doing it. If it's no, stop doing it, period, end of story. And part of what allows you to be able to do that is the second piece, which is get a number two and let them start doing the doing. Mm -hmm. Relinquish the control. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you say that because it sounds so simple just to get clarity on what you really do want. And if what you're doing is not getting you there, do something different. And I always say sometimes the simplest or the easiest things to do are the hardest to discover. Yeah. So them discovering that clarity on what they want and realizing and determining if what they're doing is taking them closer to that goal is what's most important. Well, this the the story or the metaphor I like to use is that of a taxi driver. And the brain is an amazing thing. If you say this is where we're going and this is what it looks like. It will weed out a bunch of choices. Like if you say, oh, I'm going to go back to college, suddenly you're looking at laptops because you need to go back to college, right? The story I like to frame it up is if you get it in, I'm dating myself because I'm going to say taxi. You can't, it doesn't really work with an Uber because you have to put your destination <laughs> in. But if you get in a taxi and you're in the back seat and the driver says, where do you want to go? You're like, I don't know. And the driver says, well, do you want to go to work? Oh, God, no, not work. Well, you want to go to the mall? God, no, not the mall. Well, do you want to go to Ross's house? Oh, no, no, we're not Ross's house. Well, where do you want to go? That's what we're doing to our brain when we don't say, this is where I'm going. And in the case of our life, time and energy is running out on what we actually want. Often it's beliefs that get in the way. We don't think it's possible. But if we don't spend the time to get clear on where we're really going, the brain doesn't realize which choices it should be saying yes to and what it should be filtering out. So clarity seems easy, but like you said, it's the hardest thing to discover. You got to get real quiet. And the people we're talking about are so busy doing the doing. There's no quiet to figure out which beach are we living on and what does the kitchen remodel look like? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love it. So I'm so looking forward to seeing your next journey, helping all these business owners build a life where they can have time freedom and geographical freedom and be, what did you call it? Stinking rich? Yeah. Well, there's, I have some uh, inappropriate words I can say, but yeah, stinking rich will do. Okay. Well, that is amazing. I really thank you for taking the time today to share all this information and your story with us. It's been Just a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I felt like we were just hanging out. I forgot that we were in front of mice and cameras. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Thanks, Ross. Thank you. It was great being here.